Yo, what's up? And welcome to episode 95 of Throwback Hoops. My name is Rob Clayton, and joining me as always is Woody V. Woods, how you doing, mate? Good, man. Kings got a win yesterday, so pretty happy and a great way to start the week. Always good to be back on the mic with you, brother. Uh, it's a pleasure, mate. So just a reminder where to find us. Please make sure you like, rate, and subscribe on YouTube. Um, if you listen to the audio, uh, please make sure you subscribe there. So... Right, we're absolutely thrilled to have another very special guest this week. This man was a player coach with the Newcastle Falcons in the inaugural year of the NBL in 1979. He won back-to-back championships coaching the Canberra Cannons in 83 and 84, and then went on to coach with the Sydney Kings, helping to grow the NBL to its glory days of the 90s, and then went on to play a big part with the NBL expansion, and of course, helping bring the Sydney Kings back after a two-year absence. He is in the NBL Hall of Fame and will also be inducted to the New South Wales Basketball Hall of Fame this month. He is a man that Woody and I both greatly admire and it is a huge throwback hoops welcome to Bob Turner. Thanks for having me and thanks Woody and uh, great to be a part of your 95th show. Nah, it's an absolute pleasure to have on have you on here, Bob. Hopefully, I got all that right. There was so much on the resume there, so I had to make sure I got some of those some of those facts right. So, all right. Well, one thing we do, Bob, is Woody and I like to sort of talk a little bit of um, you know a jersey and tell a little bit of a story there. So I might throw it to you, Woods. I can see you wearing a Sydney Kings jersey in, in honor of Bob. There. Um, what do you got for us today? Sure. Let me just stand up, and you can you can take the audience through it. That's an interesting one there. Super Mario, number thirty-one, Mario Donaldson. It's probably a bit of a trip down memory lane for Bob there. Um, definitely, definitely. Someone, um, I mean, I've worn this jersey before, but I thought I'd wear it today because, I mean, Brad Rosen was on the show and he told us an interesting story about how you actually uh, noticed Mario in, in the CBA and, and recruited him to come over here. So maybe I'll throw it over to you, Bob. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that process was and what are your memories of, of Mario Donaldson? Well, you know, I was looking for a, a replacement um, for Dwayne McLean. And uh, I went over to the US and uh, um, went to Iowa with David Atkins, who had provided so many players, Leroy Loggins, Cal Bruton. Uh, and he was a good mate and he was a former coach in the NBL. So I went over to Des Moines to watch uh, Mario play because he was high on bringing Mario out. Um, while we're watching the games, uh, he had about 20 odd players who were all trialing playing some scrimmage games. And as we were watching, uh, you know, you couldn't help but notice Mario knew how to play and could handle the ball, could score, you know, handle himself on the court. But there was this other guy named Leon Trimmingham who was, you know, running up and down the floor, dunking and just creating havoc for the opposition. And I said, hold on, time out. Who is this guy? Um, Oh, Leon Trimmingham. He says, look, he's really young. He's very raw. Uh, He's only played at a small college. I said, yeah, but look at him. He's exciting as heck. Um, so I brought both of them over that year. Um, and uh, Mario was had Mario was just a, a really class player. Uh, knew what he was doing on the court. Yep. A leader. Um, and, you know, Leon became, you know, above the rim trim uh, because yep. he could, you know, you give him the ball in the paint and, you know, he either dunk on you or score on you, one of the two. Um, you know, Leon wanted to become a, a small forward so he could maybe get, get into the NBA because um, he had never been taught those skills. You know, he was a back-to-the-basket, low-post uh, athlete. Um, we, we tried to move him out, but, you know, those skills don't come easy, being able to put the ball on the floor and, and attack somebody 20 feet from the basket. Um, so we put him right back in the middle and said, yep. Uh, Mario get on the ball, and uh, when once it goes into Mario, Damien Keogh, you stand out there and get ready with your feet planted to shoot those threes, and yep. off we go. Hey, Bob, I'm all right in thinking that CBA team had a couple of other names as well. So Ricky um, Rainman Jones was also on that team, and I believe Tim Legler as well might have also been on that team with Mario Donaldson. He might I'm have sure been. How you remember him Mario, back then. I didn't watch Mario in the CBA. I watched him in this trial. Okay, right, right. Not right. that fact wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had about 20-odd guys and yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot of good athletes. Because David David had a reputation for getting players all around the world, especially Australia. So, yeah. you know, he was um, he put this on for me specifically to go watch. 
Um, and that's when I saw those two guys and thought, no, they'll, they'll do for us. And you mentioned Leon Trimingham. When we talk about the rich history our ball club has, you think about your Dwayne McLean's, your Leon Trimingham's, because they stand out. But someone like Mario gets slept on a little bit, and people don't speak about him as much as they should. But he did have a fantastic year. And it was 94, I think, from memory, right, that he was with us. And then 95, uh, I also brought in Phil Smythe, who had played yeah. for me in Canberra, who I think is one of the best players ever to be produced in this country. Yep. Um, and, you know, with him and Mario in the backcourt, it was destined to be, and Damien Keogh as well, it was destined to be, you know, like a real tough outfit. So you couldn't press us. You couldn't, uh, you know, we could get the ball up the floor. We could, uh, you know, he's a great playmaker. Uh, and Mario could do his thing and Damien Keogh could do his thing. But uh, in the preseason, Phil got uh, in a practice session, he got wedged between Dean Utoff and Brad Dalton, yep. <laughs> two big bodies, <laughs> right? Yeah, and and wrenched his shoulder. And while he played for a couple of games, um, it 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 didn't last, and uh, he had to get it operated on. So he missed the whole season. Um, now you lose a guy like Phil Smythe, it put pressure on Damian Keogh, Greg Hubbard, and Mario Donaldson to bring the ball up, and that that wasn't in their resume. Yep. So teams started to press us, you know, uh, religiously. And, uh, you know, we, we probably led the league in turnovers that year. And Mario Mondays, this is a myth that Brad Rosen tells us about. Is it real true that Mario Donalds would come into practice every Monday and just make every bucket? <laughs> He'd try. <laughs> He'd try. <laughs> I mean, he was a hell of a shooter. And then he yeah. went on to Canberra and played yeah. with the Canada. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, 97, yeah. I think it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I appreciate that, Woods. Well, I've got a bit of a trip down memory lane. I always show a couple of jerseys, Bob. So one I'm hanging behind me, I hope I've got this right. So um, am I right in thinking you might have coached James Crawford for one year in Canberra or am I a year off for that? Did you have him for that one okay. year? Definitely okay. in uh, 86. Yeah, yeah. they're right. So that's my first ever basketball jersey. I ever had that one hanging behind me. So you can see just right? an old school Perth Wildcats one. But rather than me talk about James Crawford, what was he like in that, you know, coaching him in that first season? He's a, a legend of the NBL. Absolute legend. Uh, you know, his nickname was the Alabama Slammer because he mm -hmm. could he could dunk better than anybody I've seen since, yeah. uh, to be honest. But, you know, he was playing for Geelong. And uh, I went to Canberra in 83. And, uh, you know, we, we created a bit of, uh, well, we, we sold out every game and really put the Cannons on the map. And actually, the Cannons were the first team to actually play in a venue that sat more than you know, 2,000 people other than Apollo and Adelaide. Um, but, you know, so we moved into a, a major venue. I had a, a power forward named Dave Nelson who could hit 15, 18-foot jump shots religiously, and uh, we had a very good combination. But after three years, we'd, we'd won back-to-back. -back. And then in, in the third year, um, we, were, we were headed to win it again, and I thought we had everything going. And Herb McGeechan's father passed away. Uh, and he had to go back home two days before the finals. So we missed our, you know, yeah. our absolute studs. Um, and we got beat in the semifinals by Brisbane. And then after that, Dave Nelson, who was that player, my captain, actually, uh, he just went off the boil. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, we, we, can't, we can't continue on. We got to make a change. Uh, so I heavily pursued James Crawford because every time we played him, he'd kill us. Um, you know, the same thing with Andy Andy Campbell. You know, Andy Campbell, big when man. he played West Adelaide, uh, we played them in the finals in 83, and, you know, he was blocking shots everywhere. And I thought, I don't want to play against him anymore. Let's bring him to, <laughs> to Cameron, and we'll play with him. Uh, so we did that. And the same with James, you know. So I, I went after James uh, pretty heavily, and – At that time, the Cannons were by far the most profiled team in the league. We'd sell out crowds every game, four and a half thousand, uh, had our own TV show. Um, so it was, you know, he's playing with Phil Smythe, playing with Herb McGeechan. Uh, so we had a very good combination uh, ready to go. And he came in, and I remember we had the media there on game day on, on, at the Palace ready to, to meet James, the Alabama Slammer, and I – I had a reversible jersey on uh, or ready to give him, you know. So he walked into the stadium and I threw the jersey on onto him and I said, hey, put this on for practice. And he took his shirt off 
And I swear it was embarrassing because it was about the most absolute, you know, specimen of a human being you could ever imagine. <laughs> Muscles ripping and everywhere. And, and I thought, whoa, this guy is an athlete. He's still probably one of the best two-foot dunkers I've ever seen. And then, like, he, he didn't really jump off one foot, did he? But just those two foot, the way he used to get up there. I mean, he was banging his head on the backboard half the time when he'd be jumping. Yeah, he up was there. one foot, two foot, or no feet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely amazing player. Uh, fun, yeah. to, fun to watch, fun to play, and he just helped us continue on by selling out every game, and um, <laughs> people came to watch him play. Nice. Well, I'll show my other jerseys. This is someone that Bob's mentioned this name a couple of times now, so even a very old-school jersey as well, so let's quickly stand up and show this one. For audience that can't see and are listening to the show, we've got a West Stars Damien Keogh jersey. It's an absolute classic you got on there, Robbie. Where'd you find that one, man? Uh, I had that in the collection a while. It's a bit of a random one, isn't it? But yeah, I had to have a, a West Stars one in there to complete yeah. the collection. So I'll throw to you first, Woods, and I'll go to Bob. But what was your thoughts as a Sydney Kings fan, Woody, with um, Damien Keogh? Just um, that, that left-handed technique, you know, as, as Bob said, you, know, you had such, such great players around him in those early 90s. So he just needed to stay open and, and make sure that he was there to catch the ball and let it fly from, from downtown. And, and you know, he, we say this a lot about guys that were much ahead of their time. A guy like Damien Kia would have thrived in the, the way the game is played today as well, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, he was a big guy too, wasn't he? He gets yeah. forgotten. He had a three-time Olympian as well, so yep. we can't sort of forget that. But what was he like as, a, as someone to coach there, Bob? You're obviously with him for quite a while there. Very, very intelligent. In fact, you look at his career now. He's, he's mm. CEO of Hoyt's uh, Media. He's, he's very accomplished. He was, he's a great speaker. Um, just intelligent and mm. handled himself well on the court and off the court. And when he came up to Sydney, he wanted he played for the Bankstown Bruins before the West Stars, and the West Stars were taken over by the Bruins were taken over by the organization that renamed them. Uh, but it was just premature that what they tried to do was way too big for for what Sydney was ready for. Um, but Damien was you know he he just stayed at it and stayed at it, and as you said, a triple Olympian. Um, but when I got to Sydney uh, in '89. Um, you had Steve Carfino and Damian Keogh in the backcourt, and they had kind of opposed each other before they merged uh, to form the Kings. Um, so it, it took some time to get them playing on the same page. Uh, but then I brought in Ian Rebilliard, uh, who's more probably more of a rugby player than a basketball player, uh, in his mentality anyway, um, and just a hardworking player. And he added that extra no nonsense to our team that kind of made everybody groove and, and work together. But Damien, especially when we had Dwayne McLean, yep. um, you know, if you got the ball to Dwayne, we ran uh, a handful of dozens and dozens of plays just to get Dwayne the ball at a certain spot on the floor. And once he got it, if you didn't double team him, he's scoring because uh, you couldn't stop him. And as soon as you doubled him, Damien would sit in that left corner uh, or on the wing, and he'd have his feet planted with his hands ready. And, you know, he, he's the kind of guy that would shoot a 1,000 shots a day in practice, after practice, and just know that if his feet are planted and he's ready, it's a 60 70% shot. Yeah. Once he had to put them on the floor, it was a little diff different like every player. But, uh, you know, if he was open, it, it was that, that's how he got the nickname 3-0 Keo. And so I can still picture Rodney O, you know, doing the 3 0 Keo sort of thing after he drained a big three there. Great. I just remember also for any young kid learning to shoot, you know, when I was a young kid, I was watching Damien Keo shoot the way he, you know, he held the ball and he, and he got himself ready. And I tried to copy his technique because I thought, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. So, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was just elbow, yeah. wrist. Yeah. And Perfect. It was yeah. the same every time. Yep. yep. And, um, you know, that, that's dedication and a lot of hard work. I mean, he was a good athlete, but not a great athlete. But as you said, Robbie, he's six foot three, six foot four, solid. You know, he yeah. he was a tough, tough defender. Mm. You didn't you didn't beat him easily. And uh, you know, when you put Damian Keogh and Tim Morrissey on the floor at the same time, yeah. uh, you know, then you add Brad Dalton. <laughs> Defensively, we were pretty tough. That's it. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, that's a bit of a trip down memory lane with some jerseys there. But um, all right, we're looking forward to, to ask you some questions, Bob, and sort of go through and, and talk about how things started with you coming over here. So I wanted to maybe start with you. So just um, what I guess it was like for you growing up in Oakland, California. Um, who were your early influences getting into basketball back in the day? 
Well, when I was a, when I was young, like you know, anywhere from eight to fourteen, I was mainly a swimmer, hmm. um, and you know, I was a little guy, so I didn't grow. I was a late bloomer, um, but I had had I had a bit of a gutsy attitude to things, so I could swim, and I was a fifteen hundred meter swimmer, so I could go a long time, and but I was only a small guy. Um, so, but I love basketball, uh, but typical of America, you play baseball, you play basketball, you play football. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I also added swimming and, um, during those days, I mean, I, I would play with a lot of my mates. I had a, a hoop at my house that most people would do, you know, the, the rim on the garage door. And, um, then as I got to, uh, I, I transferred schools when I was a, sophomore, uh, my year, year 10, I transferred, my parents moved to another city. And in that city, they had a coach that was absolutely the most influential man in my life. Um, a fellow who was on, he had polio, he was on permanently on crutches. Uh, so he couldn't demonstrate a screen and roll, he couldn't, you know, demonstrate how to shoot. But psychologically, he understood everything and knew how to motivate you to do the right things. Um, so I went to amateur high school and basketball became, I started to grow, uh, my junior year, um, I was on the varsity team. I played every game, but I scored a total of seven points all year. Um, so I was a point guard, defensive guy, hustle, squirt, you know, just do all those things. Uh, and I wasn't really that offensive orientated. Um, then between my junior and senior year. I grew like six inches. So now I'm like uh, six foot. Um, and I'd always worked hard on my you know, ball handling skills and be able to dribble. And so now I started working on shooting. And I'm like you, Woody, I'd sit in, in my garage with a big mirror above the washing machine and I'd be, you know, <laughs> concentrating. How do you do this? Uh, so it was a consistent shot. And so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm now the stud of the team. Um, scoring 20 a game. Uh, but right before the season actually started, we, we played like a dozen preseason games. We had our own tournament that we hosted because our team was fairly successful. And the day of the game, my coach called me in and he said, you're not starting tonight. Uh, and I was like, whoa, you know, what do you mean I'm not starting? Uh, he said, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking of kicking you off the team. And I was like, you know, crying and, you know, I'm 16 years old and I'm ready to go. And he said, I said, why? He said, because your attitude's changed. You think you're pretty good now, um, you know, and you used to be my hardest working player. And now you think you can, you know, just play and you, you're, you're a stud. Uh, I said, it's okay. wake up call, yeah. It was a wake up call. So that night I got more floor burns you could shake a stick at. <laughs> um, I dove for everything. I hustled. I, I didn't start. But that turned my whole career, not only my career around, but it just taught me a lesson uh, about life. You know, don't don't go like this, you know, go kind of consistent. Um, and then I went to college. That got me a scholarship to go to college, uh, which I played at UC Santa Barbara. And the fifth year, I registered one year because I was still growing physically. Um, and then my senior year, I was captain of the team and, and playing, you know, Leading, starting point guard, but halfway through the season, our, our college wasn't going to make the NCAAs. And so my coach decided he would start to play some of the younger kids to play them and give them some experience for the following year. So I went from playing 30 minutes a game to maybe 10. And, you know, I, I was a walk on, I had busted my tail to get there. So I was, you know, frustrated. Um, and along comes a fellow who had graduated from Santa Barbara, but he had come to Australia on a teaching um, visa, you know, an exchange program. Mm. Um, so he was down at Bombardieri uh, School Teaching, and then he was coaching the Shalave and Tigers. So he was looking for a big guy. My roommate was 6'10", and he had just graduated. So he And he brought two of, two of his Aussie players with him because so, they were a little bit of experience. So they're in my apartment talking about going to Australia and how good it was. And I thought, hey, I don't want to stop playing. You know, can I go too? And Gene said, uh, yeah, you can come. Um, let me make sure I can, you know, 
clear it with the administration, but should be okay. So I called my parents and said, I'm going pro in Australia. <laughs> what did you know about Australia at that time? Back said, in the late Australia. <laughs> <laughs> That's Austria, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Australia, okay, where is it again? Uh, because back in those mid-70s, you know, you, you just globally Americans were fixated on America, you know. Mm. A Californian person didn't go even to Nebraska, let alone, you know, go overseas. So, um but that was, again, you know, I said, I'll, I'll do it for a year because I want to keep playing. But my whole goal was to coach at university level. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I came to Australia and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're playing for Shoalhaven. Then I became director of coaching for the state. Um, and I kind of pioneered that job with the state body. And then the league opened up in 79. So I went up to Newcastle because the, the – chairman or the president of both New South Wales and Australia was also the president of Newcastle basketball, Doc Rasky, who yeah. founded the league. So I had known him during my days as the state director of coaching. And when he was pushing to start a, a national league, he was also recruiting me to go to Newcastle. Um, so I became the player coach in that first year, which was, which was a tough gig because most of the players were older than me. <laughs> and I wasn't a Newcastle veteran. I was kind of this, you know, who, who is this guy? Um, but it was a challenge that I, I loved, you know, and we, we were competitive and good experience. Look, we'll just um, get into that a little bit further, Bob. Um, I just also wanted to ask you, growing up, obviously the NBA was, was you know, coming to the fore in the 70s, right? Was there a player or someone that you modeled your game on that you looked up to or a team that you followed, you know, in, in that period? Yeah, I was always a Boston Celtics fan. Okay, uh, okay. Mainly because I loved the way they played. Yep. And I loved the way, you know, I, I did a lot of study on professional teams and even later down the track when I became an owner of teams, you know, what makes a team successful? You know, sure. how, does, how do the New York Yankees maintain stability when they're paying so much money? How, how did, you know, Manchester United make it? And a lot of it comes down to the, the guy in charge uh, because it all filters down from the top. And Red Arback was one of those right. guys that didn't tolerate, you know, a whole lot. Uh, if you played for the Boston Celtics, it was a privilege. It wasn't just a contract. Um, and you had Bill Russell, yep. uh, who was the epitome of a team player. Um, he actually came to uh, the Bay Area and, and gave a, a talk that I went to do. And I was like wide-eyed and, wow, this guy, you know, he just a gentle giant, but boy, put him on a basketball court and he was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but they just, everybody who played, John Havlicek, you know, Jojo White, all these guys that would, would come in. And a, and a great lesson was, I, I can't remember the name of the player, but uh, he wanted more money. Um, and Red Arbeck, you know, was not willing to give him more money, so he caused a little bit of havoc. So they signed him to more money and traded him the next day. Said, you don't do that to the Boston Celtics. <laughs> now, those are back in those days where, you know, uh, you could do that. Today it's a little bit harder in the NBA because of all the, all the money and all the influence players have. But uh, I tell you, you still have a, a Popovich in San Antonio who is like the coaches of old. You know, you, you don't tolerate. If you want to play for me, fine. If you don't want to play for me, go somewhere else. No, fair enough. It's good to see Popovich still doing his thing after all these years, right? And he got a he got a huge bonus this year. Yeah, <laughs> he certainly did. A seven foot five definitely. bonus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a seven foot five bonus. <laughs> well, Woods, you want to? Ah, so yeah, so yeah. yeah, so I mean, let's talk about that 1979 when you were appointed player coach. What was that dual role actually like for you? I know you mentioned it was a bit difficult to, you know, adapt to that. And what are your memories of your early years in, in the NBL, right? Uh, it was exciting because yep. now we're playing, um, you know, in a national league. So in, in a place like Newcastle, who had a very strong history of success in basketball anyway. But now you're playing, you know, if you, if you think about the local area of the Hunter Valley, you know, rugby league was the main game. Um, and it was, you know, Cessnock versus Maitland versus, you know, Scone or whatever. But it wasn't, you know, Newcastle. 
Um, now all of a sudden, and then there was the, the soccer was playing at the time. So the Newcastle KB Raiders was the big, big team in, in Newcastle at the time playing in the NSL or whatever the league was called at the time. Um, so I knew that we had a chance to really do something special in Newcastle. Um, I don't know if I was ready. I was only 25. I don't know if I was ready to be a player coach of a senior pro team with guys older than me, but you know, okay, I'll give it a go. And, you know, we found that uh, in that first year by playing in a national league, Newcastle all of a sudden was on the map because this week Adelaide comes to town. Next week it's Melbourne. Next week it's Sydney. Whereas prior to that, it was a state league in New South Wales where, you know, there was Shoalhaven Tigers. There was a Wollongong team. There was a few teams in Sydney. Newcastle had a few teams. And that was it. Uh, but now you're playing – National League and representing Newcastle. So we had a chance to really build it up. My second year, I was still director of coaching for the state at the same time. So that was a full-time, you know, travel the state, giving coaching courses and camps and clinics and, and all those things uh, and writing programs. So it was like I was full on. So the next year I thought, no, it's too hard. I, I'll just play because I don't want to stop playing. Um, I'll let somebody else coach and I'll keep director of coaching for the state um, and let somebody else coach. Um, so in 80, there was a guy that was brought in that, you know, didn't quite fit the bill and he wasn't what he what yep. Newcastle wanted. So the next year I said, look, I'm, I'm ready to quit playing and traveling is getting to me. I was still young, but I, I didn't want to play anymore. I just wanted to coach. So I said, I'll stop playing. I'll be your head coach, but I'll also give up the job as director of coaching and just focus on Newcastle. Um, so that's what I did. And then Newcastle, you know, I also got involved in the marketing, more heavily involved in the marketing side of it yep. because we wanted to fill our stadium and build a bigger one. Um, Can you recall if there were any other player coaches back in the day, Bob, in the NBL? There's not many. Any, any Richardson and West Island. Uh, okay, yep, yep, yep. Yep. Um, and then, hey, later on, Cal Bruton as well, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, but it's 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 a hard thing to do. Oh, I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, you got Shane Hill even did it for a little bit. Everybody else, <laughs> Shane Hill did it for a little bit of the Dragons, I think, as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it, mm -hmm. not too many because yeah. it's not an easy thing to do. No, yeah. um, especially in today's world. I mean, I still sometimes watch games, and I think, you know, you don't need 15 assistant coaches. You know, you're the coach, make the decision and, and call the game. Um, but that's me as an old school coach that, you know, had two really good assistants always and everywhere I was. But uh, we didn't need a team of, you know, cast of thousands. So, Bob, I'm interested to hear about those first few years with the Cannons. So we've mentioned, obviously, back-to-back -back champions there. Um, if I'm um, right, I believe they were one-game series, right, in those two grand final wins you had. And I think they were maybe two-point wins in both of them there. But um, talk to us about those back-to-back -back wins. So 40 years on now, what things have stuck with you about that time with the Cannons? Canberra Cannons were – they recruited me to come from Newcastle. Um, and I took the job on because they're playing in a venue that sat more than – 2,000 people. Uh, and it would be the first team to actually play in a venue that wasn't designed for basketball. Uh, the National Indoor Sports Center at Bruce, uh, which was part of the Institute of Sport, um, was a great venue. Um, now, the National Indoor Sports Center at Bruce is a mouthful to say. So I, I had read an article when I first came to, came to Canberra to figure out what we were going to do, not only coach the team, but I was going to market the team. Um, and fill the stadium. Uh, so I nicknamed the, the venue the Palace because uh, it was a lot easier and it was like a palace. Um, we went out and got Phil Smythe to come in. Uh, and again, Jenny Cheeseman, his wife at the time, was uh, a women's coach. So she came to coach the Institute of Sport. Um, I brought Jerry Lee. I had Jerry Lee, who was my college roommate, and I knew if Jerry Lee's on a team, you're going to be successful because he doesn't tolerate... <laughs> Uh, anything but. Uh, you had Herb McGeechin, et cetera. And so we, you had the, the makings of a good team. Um, and you just had to mold it right and create this environment. And off the court, I kind of said, okay, um, we need to promote the Cannons as the number one sports team in the whole city. Um, 
I went to uh, Capital Seven Television Station, um, and we had we were the first team to have a, a major sponsor. It was a Mazda was our Mazda New South Wales was our sponsor, and they were giving us some money as a mainly as a lobby in Canberra to get the politicians to say Mazda is a great company, and let's let them get some more cars into the country so they can sell them. Um, but I took that money and I went to this TV station. I said, "What if we, what if we gave you that money? Would you put us on TV uh, every week?" Um, they said, "Yeah, that's a good idea." As a local Capital Seven, Kerry Stokes was the owner of uh, of the, the TV station, so it kind of went to him, and he said, "Yep, yeah, let's let's give it a go." So we developed Hooked on Cannons, uh, which was a weekly show um, of not only our game but whatever footage we could get of other games, we'd cut it down. And it was a one and a half hour show on a Saturday from 12 to 1.30, which was also right before the AFL was played on, on yep. Capital Sun. Mm. So that that kind of helped us. Then I went to the Canberra Times and got them to be a sponsor, went to the two radio stations, got them to be a sponsor. And our crowds all of a sudden started to, to really build and if I can go back to the 83 season, we played, uh, I think, Nunawading um, on, a, on a Saturday night, uh, Friday night, and uh, we won that game. Then we had the next day to travel somewhere and play the second semi game. Um, we won that. And then, oh, no, I'm sorry, we played Nunawading at home on a Friday night, traveled to Geelong on Saturday, and played Saturday night in Geelong. And then the third game was back Sunday at Abbott Park and played St. Kilda on a Sunday afternoon. Jeez. We played three games in three days, and this was the semifinals of the league. <laughs> um, but everybody did it. That's what you did. Yeah. And our players basically were all had jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, so this is still 83. Some are full-time, but some, most of them are still working. So we, we kind of built that into it. And then next, next week we played the finals. Went down to Melbourne and uh, and beat West Adelaide, beat Coburg on the first night, then beat West Adelaide the next night. Uh, flew back to Canberra and there was a thousand people at the airport uh, cheering us on. Um, so you know, unbelievable experience. So the next year, you know, keep the same team, keep working at it. Uh, the crowds sold out every game, uh, like you know, four four thousand eight hundred, four thousand nine hundred every game. Uh, win the championship again, again in Melbourne, uh, beat uh, Brisbane in the in the final, fly back. Now there's 1,500, 2,000 people at the airport. And, you know, the Canberra Cannons were the hottest thing in town, uh, without question. Any 40th anniversary celebrations this year or anything for that, Bob? Or? Well, there's no Cannons, so it's hard to have uh, a Ah, True, true. Well, that's a good segue, actually. That is. That is. When you talk about the Cannons <laughs> and the success they had, right, and the popularity of the game in that region... Um, it mustn't have been easy for you to see them leave the league. And now when we're talking about expansion with the NBL and, and the NBL in a great place, like after a long time, it's in the best place it's been. Absolutely. The, the Capitals are surviving there. You know, what are your thoughts about potential expansion in, back into Canberra with the NBL? Well, I, I, don't, I don't have the same positive vibe that, you know, teams of that kind of city size can yep. make. Uh, like I was in Newcastle. Um, I don't know how Wollongong and Cairns right. survive. You know, because what I was paying, the salary cap back in those days was like a million dollars. The salary cap today, even during the King's days, the salary cap was, um, or when I was at the Singapore Slingers, I think it was 890000 or something. Yep. Um, now that's, you know, seems to be one or two players. That's what they're paying. Um, so I don't know how you sustain in a model like Wollongong or Canberra or Newcastle or... Townsville, um, how you how you can generate four or five million dollars to operate your franchise when you have a four thousand seat arena? Um, mm-hmm. So my seven years with the Kings, you know, once we started that first year, I was there. They went from losing, you know, money to making three quarters of a million dollars profit um, because we filled up the venue and we had good corporate support. But I I could sell a box in in Sydney for twenty five grand. Yep. And a box in Canberra, if I got eight grand or seven grand, that was big time. Mm. So it's just the market and what, what you have in those cities. So now if you're Wollongong and you have a 4,000-seat arena, um, you fill it every game, 
at 20 bucks a pop or whatever and that um you know yeah you're making 80 grand a game but then your expenses are there it's hard to raise four or five million yeah when you talk so about it sure when camera yeah. fell, fell apart yeah. uh, because they can't financially sustain themselves yeah, when, when when you talk about those community-based teams, Cairns, the Lawara, like you, they rely on recruiting really well, right? Yeah. Um, and and someone like Cairns does that, and they might find a player who stays for one year, and then you see like a DJ Ho go to go to yeah. Sydney and and get the big buck. So yeah. you make a very good point how these community-based teams just yeah. carry on. So that would be the big concern. Well, right? coached, and yeah. they have to be yeah. very uh, resourceful as to how they recruit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the early 90s, Bob. And I, I spoke to you about this offline briefly. When I first moved to Australia in 89, 90, I, was, I moved to Beecroft. It was difficult to make friends and adapt to a new country, right? Yeah. And my dad got me heavily involved in basketball, and that really helped break down barriers for me, right? A big part of that was going to Kings games, whether um, we'd be watching them live at the stadium or on TV. And he'd always tell me, Bob, that I absolutely love that coach. I love the way he goes about his business. <laughs> so he's speaking about you, Bob. Um, and, uh, Smart man, your dad. <laughs> yeah, and he's, uh, Raj is super excited that you're coming on this show today, so he'll he'll be listening to this. Um, but there was such a real buzz around the city of Sydney in, in that period in the early 90s of basketball and the Kings. Looking back now, how did it feel to be part of what many people consider was the golden age of, of, of basketball in the city? You know, when it, again, you go back to what I said a little earlier. Yep. So you, you had the Sydney Kings were formed in 88. That was the only team in Sydney because the other one, the West Stars, had not survived financially. Uh, I was coming up calling the games in 88 and looking around going, you know, if Sydney doesn't go, the game is still stuck uh, because this is where the corporates and the media hubs are all based. So I said to my partner, um, let, let me go coach the Kings and see if I can help build the marketing and enliven it up a bit and if we can do that then basketball will be a lot easier to market and promote because until sydney goes you know the corporates don't understand it and uh, and again a good example is in canberra we were the hottest thing in town by far uh, our own tv show and a lot of corporates in canberra were kind of smaller divisions of the the main bodies in sydney and melbourne but the head office was usually in sydney and so they would go and say hey we We've got to be at the palace. We've got yep. to have a box at the cannons. Uh, and the Sydney people would go, you what? Basketball? you kidding me? You know, we don't play basketball. So until Sydney actually could make it, it, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So when I came in in, in 80, end of 88 season to get ready for 89, um, I said to Mike Robleski, look, I'm going to keep the same team. He said, you're crazy. We came 10th. Uh, I said, no, no, the culture was wrong and the attitude was wrong. Well, you got talent. Let's see if we can't mold that talent a little bit better. Um, I brought in Ian Rebilliard, who was, a, you know, as I said earlier, a real tough yep. SOB on the court and didn't tolerate fools. So he came into the equation. And um, I started to set about doing what I'd done in Canberra and Newcastle of getting the media on side, getting corporates on side, you know, hustling the city, you know, we were out speaking everywhere you could. Uh, our players were all full-time, so we would do 500 school visits a year. Uh, we went to the local associations and said, we'll do camps for you with the Kings. Uh, you make all the money. We're just going to come and promote. Um, and my attitude wasn't like appeal to the basketball person to come to a game because the, the average basketball person thought, you know, I play basketball, I should get a free ticket. Um, that's the kind of mindset. Sure. You know, I always recruited, uh, my, my head was always looking at, you know, when I was at the cafe, the person making a sandwich, how do I get that person to come to the game? Yep. How do I get that person to understand basketball is okay? Um, so we started to really hustle the city and, um, and use that, you know, not just on the court, but off the court, more importantly, to, to try and build yep. something. 
I've got a bit of a story on that as well, Bob. So 1990, um, you and Mark Ridland did a, um, just sort of visited a, a sports store in Pennant Hills. So I was obviously a big Wildcats fan. It was a big autograph hunter back then. So went to this sports store and, and met you and Mark and got an autograph. And I've told Woody this story before. You know, you're very impressionable at that age. Um, I remember meeting you and you couldn't have been any nicer. And it always sort of stuck with me. I mean, I've also told a story to Woody about I met Greg Matthews, an ex-cricketer at a similar sort of time. And it couldn't have been any um, more unfriendly towards me, basically, sort of thing. So it always stuck with me. And even though I was always with the Wildcats, I always had that soft spot for you after that. So it just shows you when people sort of meet kids and everything like that, how much things can stick with them there. So that's just a little bit of a, a trip down memory oh, lane, no, meeting, you, meeting you and Mark on. then. Yeah. You're spot on. That, that, that is what builds anything, you know, the culture of, of any organization, whether it's yeah. business or sport. And, you know, if you're going out, you need to genuinely want to do it. And my, you know, I'm a basketball lover, so I wanted basketball to be up there where it should be. And I'd seen it in Canberra and Adelaide and Brisbane and Perth. And, and Sydney was no different. The ingredients were there. It's just a matter of how you can create a spark and, and off you go. So um, in that season, halfway through the year, we're, we're now on top of the league uh, with the same team, yep. same players. And so for me as a coach, that was my... You know, it was to me like I took a team and I actually coached them. Um, and we got to the top and then Mark Dalton busted his knee, um, I think, with about five or six games to go. So we lost him for the season. Um, and he was a key, key part of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we got to the semifinals against Canberra. Um, and we played at home first at Homebush. And we, we lost that game, but that was the infamous game where Steve Brini headbutted Damian Keogh yeah. on the sideline. Now, you always look for something that's going to be a spark. That was the spark um, because the headlines, you know, coach headbutts player. <laughs> um, the next morning I was on the Today Show with Steve Liebman and Lise Hayes saying, can you believe it? No, no coach has ever done that in the history of the game. <laughs> and they were playing it up. So all of a sudden, the Sydney Kings were on the map. Uh, we, we had some good crowds, but we were really appealing to similar, you know, like people who like basketball. And so that put us on the map that all of a sudden, and I remember in the Daily Telegraph, which I still have on my wall at, in my office at home, a picture of our players going down the Hume Highway and every player had a different helmet on. And, you know, it, the, the, the swing tag on the helmets said anti-headbutt gear. Yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden we've now hit it there as well. So they, they beat us in the semis, um, but that put us on the map. The next year we moved to the entertainment center and everybody says, you'll never duplicate the atmosphere. It won't work. Uh, it's too big. Um, but Mike and I and Lorraine, we kind of all said, look, it's, you know, the ingredients are there. We'll just, if we get seven or 8,000, it's better than, you know, four. Um, and we'll build from there. And within two years, we sold out every game. Uh, some, because some... in the city, it was exciting. It was fun. It, it wasn't the basketball people that were coming. It was the, the just the person who wanted entertainment. Some of the happiest times, fondest memories early in life for me were at the entertainment center. So I was really sad, actually, Bob, for us to move to Homebush. All the product is pretty good. Now I can't complain, but uh, yeah, yeah no, they put on a show, and yeah. but back in those days it was so different, so yep. new. It was the only indoor sport in town. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, to me, it was like okay, now we're building something. Channel Ten saw what we were doing, yep. so they came in and bought the TV rights. Mitsubishi took over the league's naming rights. Yep. The league took off, uh, and it was really that catalyst of the Kings finally making it because every other city had done it through the 80s um yeah and my my whole attitude wasn't you know if someone was a season ticket holder great uh, but i just wanted people who you know i'd meet so many people because i was out and about a lot uh oh yeah i don't like basketball do you like entertainment oh yeah well come to a game you'll you'll be entertained you'll have fun if you don't come back that's fine but what they didn't do is go and say god i went to a king's game it was terrible you know, they went and said, boy, basketball's not my game, but boy, that was fun. So the word of mouth was spreading by everybody who came because it was a lot of novice people who come for the first time. 
I mean, Dwayne McLean on a big billboard in the middle of the city, right? I mean, when are we going to see that again, right? That was just <laughs> unreal. So let's just, okay, let's unpack that a little bit further. Obviously, after keeping that team together, you brought in the likes of Dwayne McLean, right? Which is, which is, you know, the kind of guy that would put bums on seats, a bit like James Crawford, right? Yes. One guy I want to speak about, we spoke about Mario Donaldson, but a guy that also gets slept on a little bit is the chief, Ken McClary, right? Yeah. I absolutely love the way he went about his business. And you talk about McClary and McLean playing together. I remember those times so fondly. So why don't you tell us a little bit of what was he like, Ken McClary, you know, off the court as as, as an individual? How was it like coaching him? He he was a tough, tough man. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget two stories about Kenny. Yep. Um, one of the he, – he came back his first year he was playing with us. And he was um, – you know, I was demonstrating on the court now. When you're trying to block out, you, you put your arm here and look at an arm bar. And I put my arm into Kenny's chest or the, his side. And it was like hitting a brick wall, you know. And I went, you know, do this. I thought, ooh, gee, this guy, is, this guy is strong. After one year, the second year he came back, he wasn't in the best of shape. So I said, you better get in shape or we're going to drop you. Um, we, we put our strength and conditioning coach in and, started to work him out and um he went to the weight room and the, the strength and conditioning coach said okay uh you know the if i forget you lay on your you lay in your stomach and you you kind of bend your knees and pull a pull a weight towards you i can't remember the name of the the actual strategy or the actual weight machine but kenny they put it on halfway and he was just bing 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 they put it all the way on full full weights and he bing bing, bing. <laughs> and then the strength and the conditioning coach said to me, that guy has a lot of fast twitch fibers in his body. Um, yeah. so he was like tough. Uh, and if you needed a bucket and you had Kenny McClary and Dean Utoff in the, in the front court yep. and Dwayne McLean, you just created havoc. And, um, he was, he was fun to coach. Um, not the easiest guy to coach, yeah. uh, like Dwayne. Dwayne was, you know, Dwayne had been a bit of a mercenary playing around the world. And, yep. We uh, we ended up recruiting him to come because I, I could see what he came out with the uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, tour. Yep. And I watched him and I thought this guy could play, so I, I hustled to try and get him to come to Sydney. Uh, and really, within two years, he was the Michael Jordan of Australia. He yep. had his own shoe with Reebok. We yeah, had he did. McDonald's ads. Was doing commercials with him. <laughs> McDonald's was doing commercials. Yeah. With him. Uh, so once again, he became like. A star, uh, and and rightly so because he not only could play but he knew how to play it up. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're ever going to have that scenario where a basketball player has that kind of profile in Sydney, possibly ever again, right? So I don't know if any, anywhere. I mean, I look at the kind of players yeah. like this. Where's the Leroy Loggins? Where's yep. the Kyle Bruton? Where's the? Uh, we tend to turn them over pretty quick, um, or loyalty is not really you know, that, that strong. I mean, I, I could go back to my seven years coaching the Kings and, you know, Tim Morrissey, Damien Keogh, you know, you, the Daltons, you, you kept stability by, by your core. And then you bring in, yep. you know, from Pieces. Steve Carfino to Dwayne McLean to Leon Trimingham, yep. um, you know, and, but you would always add a piece that would help you to the, get to the next level. But, uh, those two guys, Dwayne and, and Kenny were, um, you know, great to have on the squad. Um, and then we, we just kept going. So, Bob, we like to put, put our guests on the spot or each other on the spot a little bit here on this show. Which famous NBA veteran who's recently retired is Ken McClary the father of? Oh, Trevor Ariza, yeah. Nice, I like it. That's I like amazing. It. Trevor, used to, Trevor used to come to the gym every yeah. day. Yep. Shoot nice. with his dad. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And you could see he just he's a, he's a gym rat. Uh, yep. yep. He loved it. Um, uh, and then all of a sudden he's in the NBA and you go, whoa, you know, how'd that happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's, he was, he was tough. Yeah. Venezuela, I think he's got some background from, right? Kenny McClary, right? Yeah. yeah he went over there. Yes. Yeah. His wife, uh, Lolita. Yeah. Um, you know, they had two other children. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was a whole family affair when they were here. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 
So, Bob, I wanted to ask you, obviously you've coached against, played with, and, you know, coached so many just legends of the game over the years. Um, I wanted to give you a pretty tough question here. I wanted to see if you could name an all-time starting five for all those players that you either coached, played with, or played against there. Um, yeah. yeah, what do you got for us? Uh, you know, it's always hard because I, I go to a different era, you know, mm. like uh, pre-2000, so to speak, where the players were were players. And if you if you had an American and didn't get 20 points a game, he wasn't going to last very long. Uh, whereas a lot of times in, in the league this year or in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you know, you, you might have a guy that you're paying a lot of money and he gets six points. That that just didn't happen in, in in the early days of the NBL. But you know, if I was going to as a point guard, Phil Smythe would be the number one yep. point guard um, because I I saw him day to day. Uh, right behind him would be people like um, Daryl McDonald, Al Bruton. Yeah. Um, you know, the Bryce Cottons of this world are are now in that kind of emerging. They've been around a, a while. Uh, but, you know, Dwayne McClain was only here two and a half seasons. He wasn't mm. here for yep. you know, 10 years or anything. Um, if I look at my off uh, shooting guard would be Dwayne McClain. Uh, and even though he was here only two and a half seasons, you just couldn't stop him. Uh, he was – he just had it. And not only on the court but off the court, he had a bit of persona about him that was just magic. And magic for the game, you know. And I'm talking about uh, as much as a player on the court, player off the court, to do some really good stuff for the for the yeah. game and building. Leroy Loggins would be my small forward. Yeah, that's uh, the most. Because I went, I mean, you know, you, you put Leroy Loggins and Andrew Gaze, and when Andrew's, Andrew's immortal. I mean, he's like the man in basketball in Australia. Um, so he's got to be in that in that mix as well. But Leroy was. Every time I played against him, you'd have strategies. You'd try and stop him. It's like Andrew Gaze. You'd try and say, okay, tonight we're going to limit him to 15. He'd get 30. Uh, you know, and he just he just couldn't stop those guys. Um, so Andrew, Andrew and Leroy would be right there. Um, power forward, or, you know, Kenny McClary was good, but he wasn't here long enough and didn't have a big enough impact. But Mark Davis uh, has been a guy that, you know, every time Adelaide was in the finals, it was Mark Davis driven. Um, chairman you know, of the boards. Chairman of the boards. And then as a center, you know, we haven't had a lot of centers, you know, stick. But Ray Borner was the MVP of the league yeah. when he played for Coburg. And, you know, just great guy, great player, great team man. Um, you know, and probably Ray and Phil Smythe in today's era – could very well have been in that same mix of all these guys that are in the NBA today. But, you know, back in the 90s, if you would have said a player from Australia was going to play in the NBA, you'd shake your head and say, never, never going to happen. Um, but you look at today and, you know, Andrew Gaze and Shane Hill were the two that kind of opened that gate and everybody else has stepped in. And then, of course, with the women, you probably got 20, 30 players that have played the WNBA and, you know, Lauren Jackson heads that list. So we, as a small country, you know, the game of basketball in the last 30, 40 years, you know, take your hat off and say, wow. Uh, now Larry Kesselman's doing a great job of keeping the NBL going uh, to the level it is now. But back in those early days, um, you know, these guys were household names. Um, and not only in their own in their own city, but in other cities. People knew who they were. Appreciate that, Bob. I'll give you an A-plus for the homework assignment. So um, it's funny. When I was thinking about that, I thought you'd have to have Leroy Loggins in there. So, yeah, no, I, yeah. I like hearing some of those names. And Leroy and Andrew, you know, kind of, mm. maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Both of them are. You can't pick five. Yeah. No. But we'd like to thank you as well for all the distinction and, 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 and what you've done for the game of basketball, not just in New South Wales, but in the country, right? And you said that coming into Sydney, you know, basketball wasn't even a thing. And look at the state of the game today. Um, and a result of all of that, you are going to be uh, inducted in the New South Wales Basketball Hall of Fame, as Robbie alluded to earlier in the show, with some other legends of the game, including Robin Maher and Glenn Savile. Yeah. That must mean a lot to you, right? It does, yeah, because I started, you know, here in New South Wales. And, yeah. you know, you take Canberra. New Ca Canberra is almost like New South Wales. Yeah. Newcastle, Sydney, um, 
even when I went to Singapore to put a team in, yep. in Singapore to internationalize the league, that was a huge, bold move to try and do that. Um, and the Slingers are still going today, which is, yeah. you know, but we, we needed to play in our own league rather than the Australian league because when you have Singapore on your chest and you have eight Australians and two Americans on your team, it's, it's, a, it's hard for the government to understand how that works. So, uh, But they're still going now, and that's mainly driven by Singaporean players, which is, you know, now those guys are all full-time. So, you know, that was a that was fun to do. But when I look at my basketball career, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed everything I did, and it wasn't work. You know, they paid me to have fun. Um, but it's a passion. When you find someone that has a passion like that, let them go. And, you know, not just me, but other people, uh, let them go. Let them do their thing because they're going to produce a, a winning culture and a winning attitude around them. And uh, that's what basketball has done for me in this country. Yeah, in the 70s when you told Mama and Dad, I'm, I'm going to Australia, little did you know that, you know, 40 plus years later, you'd still be here. So that's pretty awesome. Years, well. my, yeah. my parents used to say, you know, up until they passed away, like, when are you coming home? Well, I am home. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. But I, I've been in the last 28 years, I've been an Australia Day ambassador on Australia Day. And, the government go out somewhere and tell people how good it is to be an Aussie and uh, of course I turn up with a funny accent and uh, <laughs> who brought the yank you know <laughs> well Bob you've been so gracious with your time just one last question before we let you go I just want to know what you, you're up to these days um, I believe you've recently joined the, the board of the Australian Ice Hockey League if I'm not mistaken but um, what else is um, keeping you busy these days uh, well I'm chairman of uh, Blacktown City Football Club mm-hmm. um, I'm chairman of a group called Super Six High Performance, which is, uh, you know, watch this space. It's going to go places. Um, and the Ice Hockey League is one of those things that someone said um, that the chairman of the league has kind of been at me for two years to get involved. And I wouldn't say I'm an ice hockey person. Uh, but I went to the finals down in Melbourne, and I thought, wow, this, this, has, this is exciting. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's probably the fastest game of any sport I've been to. Uh, it's it's like rugby league on ice because it's physical. Um, and all the players that I watch play, I mean, in basketball, you have 12 guys on a team. You got three or four studs that are really good, three or four good players, and three or four that don't play a lot. In ice hockey, you got 20 people on a team, and they sub them in and out every 90 seconds. And every guy that hit the ice, I kept watching for the guy that was a, a dork, you know, or not a very good player. <laughs> Couldn't find him. They were all talented guys, and most of them, 80% of them are Aussies. So it's 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 fun. The problem with ice hockey is rinks. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of around, uh, so that needs to be fixed. But you go back to the NBL in the early days, we were playing in tin sheds, just like ice hockey is. Until we figured out how to bring a, a portable floor, portable backboards, we moved to the entertainment centers, the Superdome or the Kudos Arena. Yep. And ice hockey, you can put a floor down pretty quickly and uh, and play and then take it up. So who knows where the space will go. But a lot of this is I, I grew up in America as a sports person. Um, you know, I played baseball. I was a swimmer. I played basketball. I played football. I love sport. Here, I got pigeonholed into, into being a basketballer. Um, mm. But when people like baseball, the Sydney Blue Sox called me and said, we need someone like you to come and help us grow the game. Uh, can you do it? Sure. Uh, Blacktown City called and said, you know, we, we need to grow and restructure what we're doing. It's, it's a football. I don't know much about football. But I met the coach and I said, well, he knows football. I'll do the marketing side and let's see where we can go. So for me, it's always, I look at a situation in sport in particular and say, does it have the ingredients to be able to go to the next level or a better level than where it is? And you get your whiteboard out and put the pros and cons. And if the pros are bigger than the cons and you can move some of the cons across, well then why not have a go? So uh, it, it always reminds me when I first came to Australia back in 1976, and I turned up at Bombardier Basketball Stadium to play our first game, and there was like, you know, 15 people in the stands, and I'd come to Australia to play pro basketball. 
And I thought, well, this is not good. Um, and some guy yelled out, have a go. In fact, he said, have a go, you mug. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, have a go. Now, that's a hell of a line. Uh, and that's really been my mantra for 47 years, you know. Uh, get in and have a go. And if someone says you can't do it, well, let me test it. That's awesome, Bob. Well, look, we're just getting to a really quick outro. So, um, look, before I do that, just wanted to really thank you for your time today. I know Woody and I have both been really looking forward to this one. Um, really mean what I said about that story back in 1990, meeting you and Mark. So these things sort of stick with you there. So it's great to, to come full circle and you know, have you on our, our 95th episode. Um, so just a reminder for people, um, just to please make sure you like, rate, and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, we can also be followed on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it these days, um, at throw throwbacks hoops instagram throwback.hoops um and our email address throwbackhoopspodcast at gmail.com um bob are you sort of active on socials or anything like that can people sort of find you or have you got any sort of plugs you want to you want to sort of put out there uh just a facebook page and um mm -hmm. you know you can find me at blacktown city australian ice hockey league <laughs> super six um you know a variety of places but uh you know i'm i'm old school I, I like to shake hands with people. <laughs> nice. Oh, we love that. Well, just, yeah, really wanted to thank you again. Woods, you want to give us a final word? Yeah, look, I mean, Bob, you're such a big part of my childhood, right? And um, what Robbie said about him meeting you in the sports store and me seeing you in, in, in interviews and things, I thought, this guy, he's a really good guy. And actually meeting you in person, what standard, what a great human being you are. And you've had a huge impact on the game of basketball um, in the city um, and on, on me and my family and can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving up your time today. So it means so much to us. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I, I can tell you, you both are very, very genuine in, the, in your comments. And I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully people will listen and start to plug in to, to listen to more of what you do because you, you guys know what you're doing. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. All the best with the Hall of Fame as well when that comes up on the on the a uh, couple of weeks' time. So, thank you. All right, what's well, a big um, peace out from the Throwback Hoops crew, and um, thanks so much again, Bob. Thank you. 